All right, so welcome again. Uh, today we're doing uh, orbit and eye, and then we're going to uh, finish up with a uh, lecture on the, on the ear. Now, I've got to warn you guys, the, the, the first lecture is a little, a little heavy, uh, and the content-wise, it's, it's, it's not easy. So we're going to try to get through it, and we're going to try to uh, uh, you know, repeat some things a couple of times. Hopefully, it's going to stick. Uh, if it doesn't, uh, you, you're going to see this material come up again and again. Uh, both in small groups and in neural later on. Uh, the eye and ear are kind of, you know, complicated systems and stuff. So we're going to kind of approach it from different, different uh, directions. So hopefully at the end you're, you're comfortable with material. So have a look through the objectives, and then we'll start off uh, with an actual uh, bony orbit. So for the bony orbit, we have some uh, uh, a margin. So the margins are the kind of the external kind of opening that you see here. So we have the three bones contributing to it which is obviously going to be a frontal bone, uh, the maxillary bone, sorry, maxillary bone, and the zygomatic bone, okay? When we're looking at the, uh, the walls uh, of the orbit, there's a few other uh, bones that are contributing to, to, to the internal walls, and some of them in just a very small, minuscule way, okay? So we have the sphenoid contributing a big part to, to the wall, uh, we have the ethmoid, lacrimal gland. We also have the uh, palatine bone, contributing a very, very small uh, uh, part to that kind of posterior, posterior wall of the orbit. If we look at the, the openings uh, in the orbit itself and the contents that come through in, there's a little bit of discrepancy in different sources that you're going to look at. will tell you a slightly different thing, but this is what we're going to go with. So we have the superior orbital fissure above. Okay, so that's this opening here. We have the inferior orbital fissure below, and then we have the optic canal. Okay? The optic canal is pretty straightforward. We have the cranial nerve 2, our optic nerve, and our ophthalmic artery. Okay? Remember, ophthalmic artery as uh, a branch of your internal carotid as it comes out uh, and contributing to that circle of Willis. Okay? For the superior orbital fissure, we have our 3, 4, uh, V1, and 6. Okay? And we, we saw that in lab. We also have our superior ophthalmic vein coming through here as well. And for the inferior orbital fissure, this is the one that's um, kind of not controversial, but a little uh, iffy. I think uh, in your notes it says uh, V2 and then it's a zygomatic nerve, correct? Yeah. So just, just kind of, uh, just grammatically kind of correct that. So it's a zygomatic nerve, which is a branch of V2. So we know normally V2 exits the skull through what foramina? Rotunda, right? Foramen rotundum. Uh, so it's not the, the main branch of V2 that's coming through uh, the inferior orbital fissure, but when I was rereading your notes, it made it seem as, as maybe that's the case. So it's a zygomatic nerve, which is a branch of V2 that's going to be coming through the inferior orbital fissure. Okay? We also have the ophthalmic vein, inferior ophthalmic vein, and the inferior orbital artery and vein coming through there as well. Over on the uh, medial, inferior medial kind of aspect, we have the nasolacrimal uh, canal. So obviously this is where we're going to have our, our nasolacrimal duct coming through as it's draining the tears, and then it's going to open up into your uh, inferior meatus. Okay. Bless you. Okay. Once you look at uh, the mid-sagittal kind of section through the eye, why do I have all these animations? So annoying. Come on. Okay. So if we look at mid-sagittal kind of section through the eyeball itself, so these are all the uh, uh, structures that are going to be seeing. So we cut basically through all the kind of chambers of the eye. We see the optic nerve in the back. 
uh, obviously we, we are going to cut through the lens, the iris, the pupil, and, and the cornea. Okay, so the cornea is the kind of transparent portion in the anterior aspect of, of the eye uh, where the light is kind of coming through and getting refracted and kind of focused in by, uh, by the lens and then directed backwards onto our uh, retina. Okay? We see the three walls of the, of the eye, which we're going to see a little bit more detail later on. So we have the outermost layer, which is going to be the sclera. That's the kind of the, uh, the white of the eye. Uh, then we have the choroid layer and then the neural layer or the retina. If we look at the, the actual uh, chambers, so we have the anterior and posterior chambers, which are both filled with uh, this transparent uh, uh, fluid called the aqueous humor. Okay? And those chambers are separated by the, uh, by the iris and the, the, the pupil. Okay? So we have the anterior chamber in the front and the posterior chamber in the back. Now further back from that, we have the postremal chamber, okay? or sometimes called the vitreous chamber. And so that's going to be filled with this vitreous humor, which is a little more viscous, kind of gel-like, again, transparent uh, kind of fluid substance. If we zoom in a little bit closer uh, onto the, the lens kind of area, we can identify a few more structures. Okay, so we have, again, the three layers we can see here. Here's the sclera, the, co the choroid, and the retina just, just kind of finishing here. Continuous with the sclera, we're going to have the, uh, the cornea in the front. So again, this is the transparent part of the eye. That's going to be the white of the eye. The choroid is continuous anteriorly with uh, this, this uh, ciliary body. Okay? And inside of the ciliary body, we're going to have the ciliary muscles. Okay? And these muscles are going to be important for accommodation of the eye. So basically changing the shape uh, of the lens, depending on whether we're looking at something further away or something uh, up close, like reading a book or newspaper. Okay? And these muscles are going to be innervated by the parasympathetic uh, system, and we're going to see some, some little bit more detail on that later as well. Coming off from the uh, ciliary body, we have the ciliary processes. Okay? And in, onto the ciliary processes, we're going to have the zonular fibers uh, attaching. And these zonular fibers are going to be what's going to be attaching to the lens and basically suspending the lens kind of in space. Okay? So the lens is not like anchored or attached to anything any muscles or anything directly. It's just the zonular fibers that are kind of holding it up. Now, these ciliary muscles, obviously, you have to kind of envision that this is, this is a, a 3D, 3D structure. So the ciliary muscle is a ring of muscle all the way around. So the zonular fibers all the way around the lens. So it's, they're not just attached in one point and, and then below. In the iris, we see that there's two uh, muscles there as well. Okay, if we have two muscles there. So we see the uh, dilatory pupillae muscle. So obviously it's going to dilate the pupil and it's going to be sympathetic innervation. And then we have the sphincter pupillae muscle, which is going to be parasympathetic innervation uh, for closing down uh, the pupil. A couple other structures that we have, uh, the conjunctiva. Okay, so the conjunctiva is the kind of uh, uh, non-keratinized um, squamous kind of layer of cells that are lining just the inside of our eyelids and on the inside over the sclera, okay? The conjunctiva doesn't extend over the cornea, so it's important to, to note that, okay? So just lines the sclera and aligns the uh, inside of the eye. And so this is, this is the, the, the structure that kind of can get uh, infected when you have conjunctivitis or pink eye, uh, so it becomes inflamed, though, either whether it's bacterial or viral infection, um, you get that kind of redness and bloody shot appearance of your, of your eye. 
couple other structures that we see here in the uh, in the eyelid itself. Okay, so we see that we have uh, this tarsal plate. Okay, so this tarsal plate is this kind of cartilaginous uh, structure, so it gives a little bit of shape and structure to the eye, and you can kind of grab your upper eyelid and feel for it. It's this kind of flexible little plate inside. On the inside of that, we have uh, we have some glands. Okay, so those glands are going to be the tarsal glands, and they're going to be essentially lubricating uh, the eyelashes. We also have a couple muscles here. We have the levator palpebrae superioris. As the name implies, it's going to obviously elevate uh, the palpebra, which is going to be your, your eyelid. So when you open up your eyes wide, that's going to be the muscle that's going to be uh, opening it. So it's pulling the tarsal plate and eyelid upwards and thereby opening up the eye. We also have the orbicularis oculi muscle, which you guys should have uh, hopefully seen before when, when you did the uh, muscles of facial expression. So cranial nerve 7 is going to be doing this one. And so that's essentially acting as a sphincter. So it close, close the eye um, around. For the conjunctiva, we have uh, innervation coming from two separate branches uh, from trigeminal. So the upper eyelid, the part over the upper eyelid is going to be innervated by V1. Uh, and the part on the lower eyelid is going to be innervated by uh, V2. Okay, just following those same patterns that we see kind of on the, on the face, the distribution of V1 uh, and V2 and V3. All right, first question. So get your clickers out. Focus on the question. All right, let's see how you guys did. Eighty percent. All right, we beat our average. Very good. Okay, zygomatic bone. So, uh, out of all of these, zygomatic is the only uh, possible answer. It's asking for the floor of the orbit. So the only other option could have been what? Maxillary bone. Okay, which is not an option. So uh, therefore, zygomatic. Very good. All right, moving on to the uh, lacrim apparatus. Uh, so hopefully uh, you guys seen in the lab uh, the lacrimal gland. Sometimes it's tough to see it from within the kind of surrounding fat tissue. Uh, it kind of has the same appearance and color, but it's usually going to be located in the kind of outer upper quadrant of the orbit. Okay, So if the, the kind of roof of the orbit's been opened up for you guys to see the extraocular muscles, then you should see kind of this, this lump of tissue kind of right in the upper uh, outer quadrant, and so that's going to be the lacrimal gland. 
The lacrimal gland is obviously what produces the, the tears. Then they kind of drain down onto the eye. And by the process of blinking, so closing and opening our eyelids, that's how we distribute and spread the tears over our eyes. And eventually they're going to drain medially towards these, these kind of ports called the puncta. Okay, so we have two puncta, superior and inferior puncta. And that's where the tears are going to then drain into and enter into these canaliculi and eventually open up into this lacrimal sac. And then they're going to drain downwards through the nasolacrimal duct and open up uh, into the nasal cavity, as we've mentioned before. Okay, so this is probably what you're going to see in lab on the specimen if you're looking at the eye. So usually the, the, uh, the, f the roof of the orbit's been kind of chipped off or opened up for you guys. So this is how you should expect to see kind of on, on the lab, on the exam, uh, for any of the extraocular muscles. Uh, kind of a superior view, okay? So if we're looking at from the top, obviously, if, if it's a superior view, then it, no surprise that we're going to see the superior rectus, okay? Inferior to that, on the, on the lower aspect, we have the inferior rectus, okay? Rectus mean, meaning straight, okay? So it's an upper straight muscle, lower straight muscle, lateral straight muscle, medial straight muscle, okay? So those are the four uh, recti that are kind of around the eye, kind of one, one on each kind of side or wall of, of the orbit, okay? We have a couple other muscles. We have the superior oblique and inferior oblique. These ones are a little bit tougher to kind of visualize and, and, and see how they're uh, working or where they're coming from. But our superior oblique, uh, we should probably have the leader line if that would help. So the superior oblique is coming from the back just like the, the rest of the muscles, but it's coming forward and comes through this uh, little pulley, this little trochlea. Okay, and then it comes back onto the eye uh, from the front in a kind of posterior direction, okay, which is going to be very important for, for its action. So it, because it's coming from the front kind of backwards, so what do you think it's going to do when it's going to pull? Which way is the eye going to go? Down, okay? Down is good for now. That's good enough. We're already ahead of the curve. Okay, so that's the superior oblique. The inferior oblique, again, it's a little tough to visualize it, but it's down here. And it's actually, its origin is from the, the floor of the orbit. So it, it, it originates right from, from the floor of the orbit and then it comes back onto the eye, similar to the superior oblique in this kind of oblique direction from underneath. Okay, so there it is here. So again, it's going to have kind of a, a multitude of kind of different actions, but for the most part, or what would you expect this muscle to do? It's going to move the eye in some sort of upward direction. Okay, and that's what we're going to see later on. So this is what we saw before with the orbit, with the opening, the superior orbital fissure, inferior orbital fissure, and optic canal. And so now we put in the muscle so you kind of have an orientation of where these muscles are located. And so we have that optic nerve in the middle with kind of all the muscles uh, flanking it around. In terms of the innovation for these muscles, uh, fairly straightforward. So we have the oculomotor nerve pretty much innovating all of them. We have two exceptions, so we have the superior oblique being done by trochlear nerve because it goes through that little pulley, the trochlea, and then we have the abducens nerve, which is going to be innovating the lateral rectus. Okay, a little mnemonic to remember is SO4 LR6 to the power of three, or solar 46 to the power of three, or you can have LR6 SO4. Sometimes they reverse the flip, so whatever whatever you use to help you remember, as long as you know that the superior oblique is the exception and the lateral rectus is the exception. Everything else uh, done by cranial nerve 3. LPS is your what? 
the levator palpebrae superiores. Okay, so the levator palpebrae superiores that we saw previously that opens up the eyelid, also done by ocular motor. All right, so this is the, the, the meat and potatoes of the, of the lecture. So this is where I lose half the class. So it's important to realize that the eye does not sit uh, straight in our, in our head, in our, in our sockets, eye sockets. Okay? The eye sockets are actually kind of slanted outwards. Okay? And so the angle of the optic nerve and all the muscles and all this other stuff is kind of on an angle here. So this is called our orbital axis. So that's the way the eye is sitting naturally in our in our sockets okay the visual axis is where where we're pointing our eyes so normally when you guys are looking straight ahead at the board right now i'm looking straight ahead at you guys my eyeballs facing forward but that's not its natural kind of position in the orbit itself so far so good okay this is what's going to kind of mess everything up and throw a lot of kind of these actions and functions and angle of pulls uh, a little bit out of whack so if you kind of can understand and visualize this, um, you're well set up for the next part, okay? So again, this is the orbital axis, so that's the, the, the kind of the neutral position of the eye and where the optic nerve, which way it's located, and the, all the muscles, you see they're a little bit of an angle, but that would be the natural visual axis where we're looking straight ahead. So this brings us to the next part. So what do the muscles do and, and what are their actions? So it's not as simple as what we, we've talked about be, uh, before about just, just lifting the eye or just depressing the eye. Okay? Visualize that the eyeball has a vertical axis. Okay? So we put a pin right through the eye and we're able to rotate this eyeball on this axis. Everybody sees this, see this red dot there? No? Oh, you can't see my... Why is that? Right-click it. Have you guys been able to see my pointer at all? Jesus Christ. Why did nobody say anything? I did that. Visible. L laser pointer? Oh, look at that. We got a laser pointer. Thank you, sir. I feel like I need to go back to the beginning of the lecture. Wow, you guys... All right. Okay, so glad to know that I didn't have a pointer this whole time. and pointing at random stuff. So here's our uh, vertical axis, okay? By the way, if you ever have this situation with the, the things, up, speak up, because otherwise we don't know what's, what's happening. So you guys should have said something before. So here's our vertical axis. So where do you see that red dot and where my laser pointer is now? You see there's a red dot there before, right? So that's going to be the, the vertical axis around which, let's say, the eyeball is able to, to rotate and spin. Okay, now depending on where the muscle uh, in, in of interest is attaching to the eyeball, in reference to that vertical axis, it's going to affect the way the eyeball is going to move and rotate and spin and so on. Make sense? So here's the superior rectus, right? The orange muscle. So superior rectus coming onto the eyeball and is just attaching to the top of the eyeball. Okay, so it makes sense that when it's going to pull back, it's going to elevate the eye. Correct? But because the muscle is a little bit uh, to uh, medial to this vertical axis, again, because our eye is not pointing uh, at the orbital axis, but it's pointing at the straight vertical axis, this muscle gets pulled out of line a little bit in, in reference to this vertical axis. So it's actually going to pull a little bit on the medial side of this vertical axis. So far, so good? Okay. 
So if this superior rectus is going to pull, it's going to elevate the eye, but what else do you think it's going to do? It's going to pull the eye medially. Okay? And so that's what we have here. We have superior rectus. Its action is, this is medial. This is lateral. So its action is going to be medial and up. In and up. Okay? Inferior rectus on the bottom obviously would be similar thing, right? And that's the, the kind of light pink color that you see there. So again, it's also a little bit medial to this vertical axis. So when it's going to pull, it's going to pull down and in. Okay? The lateral rectus and medial rectus are, are pretty straightforward because they're just on the side. So they don't really get affected too much by this visual axis and orbital axis business. So they just go lateral and they just go medial. So those are, those are good. Okay? Now two more. The superior oblique and inferior oblique. Again, this, this is where kind of, uh, it gets confusing as well. So there's our superior oblique. Again, going through this little trochlea, coming onto the eye. Okay? Again, notice that the, where the yellow arrow here is, so that muscle attaches onto the top of the eyeball, slightly posterior to the uh, vertical axis. Okay? So when this muscle is going to pull, we already said that it's going to pull the eyeball down. And what else is it going to do? Out. Okay? It's going to do down and out. And so that's what we have here. Superior oblique, down and out. Okay? Inferior oblique obviously is going to do the opposite. It's coming onto the eyeball in a similar direction as the superior oblique, but from underneath, a little bit behind the vertical axis as well. So when it's going to pull, it's going to pull the eyeball up and out. Okay? So far so good? And it's the same for both eyes, right? So the left and right eye, they're going to have the same, same actions for the muscles. So when it's uh, in and up, in and up, same thing, out and up, out and up, same thing for all the muscles. This is what the muscles do, okay? So I underlined action of muscles, okay? Naturally, when, when the muscle contracts all by itself, if we were to isolate just that one muscle, ask it to contract, that's what it's going to do, okay? When it comes to muscle testing, and you're going to hear this H test probably a billion times before you graduate, uh, things kind of switch on you and things change from what you just heard. And this is where people get confused, right? And if you go to Wikipedia or you go to YouTube and you start looking up things, you have to be aware of what you're looking at. Are you looking at the action of muscles or are you looking at the testing of muscles, the H test? Okay? Here's the reason why. So when we go to test the muscles and we're trying to, to test the integrity of the muscle or maybe the nerve that innervates the muscle, okay? So that we're trying to see if the trochlear nerve is working properly or abducens nerve. We need to isolate that one specific muscle uh, all by itself so that we know that it's the only one that's doing the action that we're asking it to do. Okay? If the eye is its normal neutral position and we ask it to go up, if I go back here, right? So if I ask the patient to move its eye up, they can use a little bit of superior rectus and they can use a little bit of inferior oblique to move the eye up. So therefore, you, even if the superior oblique is not working, the inferior oblique can kind of raise the eye a little bit and give you a pulse positive and so on. Okay? So it's all about isolating the muscle that we're looking to test. And the, re the way we isolate the muscle is that we align the visual axis of the eye with the angle of pull of the muscle. Okay? The angle of pull of the muscle being the, the, the fiber direction of the muscle. Okay? So for the superior rectus, if we want to isolate that muscle, we line up the visual axis with essentially the orbital axis because that's the way that muscle is running. So we ask the patient to move the eye laterally then we ask him to raise the eye up, okay? By putting the eyeball into this 
abducted, abducted position, we knock out the only other muscle that can do uh, elevation, which is what? Inferior oblique, okay? Because once we put that eyeball in that kind of abducted position, the inferior oblique has a very disadvantageous uh, position, and it doesn't really contribute anything to elevation. So by putting the eyeball in this abducted position, we isolate it purely to superior rectus. So it's going to do elevation only. And we also get rid of this whole out and in component as well. Okay? So we ask the patient to look laterally, and then we ask him to look up. So we are testing superior rectus. Inferior rectus is going to be the same thing. Line up the visual axis with the angle of pull. So we ask the patient to look out and then downwards. By doing that, we also knock out the superior oblique. So superior oblique in this position cannot really contribute to the depression. Good enough so far? Then we have the uh, superior oblique. Okay, so now this is kind of, again, tricky. So the angle of pull, even though the muscles here, we look at the trochlear part or after the little pulley. So by, in order to line up the visual axis with the angle of pull, we actually look to ask the patient to look immediately, to look at their nose, and then we ask them to look down. Okay? By doing this, by turning the eye all the way in, we then knock out the inferior oblique from helping us do the depression. So again, we're isolating depression in the superior oblique. Okay? Inferior oblique, same thing. We line up the visual axis with the angle of pull, so we ask the patient to look at their nose, and then we ask them to look up. By doing that, we're knocking out the superior rectus from helping out. How, how many people have I lost? Hands up. Be honest. All right. 30% of the class. That's not bad. Uh, okay. So in order to test the muscle, again, we need to isolate that muscle and kind of get all the other muscles out of, out of contention in order to isolate one single muscle to that action. Okay. So this is going to be the, the muscle testing and H-test. So notice on the H-test, uh, this is medial, this is lateral. We have our inferior oblique, superior oblique on the medial side along with the medial rectus. If we go back to the actions, on the medial side we had the superior rectus, inferior rectus. So all the rectuses, aside from the lateral rectus, line up on the medial side for actions. And notice for the testing, all of a sudden they flip over to the other side. Okay? So here's what I'm suggesting for you guys. If you get it, perfect. If you don't get it, just, just memorize for now, okay? And hopefully it's going to come together later. You're going to review this again in small group, and you're going to review it again in neuro and so on. So, uh, you know, review this, and if you have a look at it, hopefully it's going to make sense. But it, the muscle testing and actions are different, and, uh, you know, it's important to know why kind of for down the road, okay? But this is the classic kind of H-test slide that you're going to see, or if you pull it up on the Internet, you're going to look for, you know, extraocular muscle testing or H-test. This is where you're going to pull up, Okay? So again, medial rectus, lateral rectus, that doesn't change. That's pretty straightforward. We have our inferior oblique, uh, so in and up, superior oblique, in and down, inferior rectus, down and in, and superior rectus, uh, up and out. Okay? This is, again, for testing, for muscle testing, which we, if you go back to the slide of actions, the superior rectus, inferior rectus, and the obliques are going to be flipped. Okay? Go back to the previous slide that I was looking at to understand why it's because you need to isolate the muscles. You need to put the position in such a, put the eyeball in such a position that all the other muscles cannot contribute to that single action.
Okay? I got 70% of the class. I'll take it for now. Okay, we're going to beat a dead horse to death, I guess. One more time. Okay? Actions. Yes. Slide 16. This one? Back one more. This one? These guys here? Which ones are wrong? Superior oblique and inferior rectus. These are wrong? They're not wrong. Come see me afterwards, but they're not wrong. Okay? Okay, so one more time quickly because we're going to run out of time here. So we have our actions, okay? So this is what the muscle is naturally going to do. This is the way we're going to ask the patient to look in order to test that muscle, okay? Very quick. So again, medial lateral. So the, the muscle by itself, superior rectus, is going to do in and up, okay? When we're going to test it, we're actually going to ask the patient to look out and up because we're trying to line up the eye, the visual axis, with the angle of pull, Okay, same thing for the inferior rectus. So naturally, it's going to do um, down and in. We're going to line up the visual axis by asking them to look out and down. Okay, same thing for all the other muscles. So this is the key to kind of get from this. So the actions are not the same thing as how you're going to test it. And all it has to do is because you have to isolate the muscle. Okay, if you're having troubles with this, come see me after and, and we, can, we can have a look at it again. Moving on to the arteries uh, of the orbit, so the blood supply. So we have a whole bunch of kind of arteries coming in here. Most of them are going to be branches of the ophthalmic artery. Okay? Uh, the main one for the, for the eyeball itself is going to be the central artery of the retina. Okay? So that's going to be traveling inside the uh, optic uh, nerve, and it's going to supply the, the retina inside. Okay? We also have ethmoidal arteries which are going to give off these uh, branches to the nasal cavity and paranasal sinuses. We have the posterior ciliary arteries, which are coming off uh, posterior ciliary. Where do we have the posterior ciliary? They're labeled here? We don't have those. Okay, we have muscular branches, so they're going to obviously be supplying the muscles. We have the lacrimal artery, which is going to be supplying the lacrimal gland on the upper outer quadrant. And we have the supraorbital and supratrochlear arteries which are going to be coming out from the associated uh, foramina and then helping to provide blood supply to the anterior part of the scalp. For the venous drainage, hopefully you guys have seen uh, these veins before and the connection that they can make uh, to the cavernous sinus in the back. So we have our facial vein, which eventually becomes the angular vein. We also have the supraorbital veins, and they connect through the superior and inferior ophthalmic veins to kind of the, the venous plexus inside of our head, inside our brain here. So we have the cavernous sinus and the pterygoid plexus. And so this is how any kind of infection, uh, you know, you probably maybe seen a clinical question or, or review questions that you've done about some infection on the face, you know, somebody picking up, a, picking a zit on their face that got infected, and then eventually they end up with, you know, meningitis or some, some you know, infection inside. So this is how they can, that infection can then travel backwards. So this is called the kind of the danger zone you see before around the nose area. So any kind of infection here can make its way back to the brain and can be very dangerous um, if it does so. Uh, and so that's how the connection uh, exists.
In terms of the uh, innervation for the muscle, so we talked about the SO4, LR6. Okay, the nerves are usually located deep to uh, the muscle that they innervate. So the nerves are going to be located kind of in the, in the middle part right on the optic nerve and then kind of innervating the muscle from the inner kind of aspect. So on the, ex on the exam or on the lab, if you're trying to find the nerve supply, don't look on the outer aspect of the muscle. Look kind of from the inner aspect because all the nerves are coming in in the kind of middle part and then they kind of distribute to the, to the muscles. Okay. So here we have the optic nerve. Okay, we also have the, the frontal nerve coming in. Okay, and the frontal nerve is going to split into your supratrochlear and supraorbital. So those are going to be cutaneous branches uh, to the face. If we kind of look deeper, so we've now reflected the superior rectus and levator palpebrae superioris. So we're looking a little bit on, on a deeper level here. We have a couple other branches. We have the ethmoidal uh, nerves, which are going to be uh, supplying the, the kind of nasal sinuses. And then we have the ciliary ganglion. So ciliary ganglion is going to be important for uh, parasympathetic innervation uh, to, the, to the eye. Okay? And after the ciliary ganglion, we're going to have ciliary nerves coming in, the postganglionics. So then we have the cavernous sinus. So we already talked about the superior and inferior ophthalmic veins, so they're draining backwards into the cavernous sinus. The cavernous sinus is the kind of large venous kind of structure that's right around the pituitary gland. Okay? So on the, on the, in the lab, you're not going to really be able to see a cavernous sinus, like a structure for it, because it's really kind of this, this, this space underneath the dura. Okay? But it's, it's this the big kind of uh, venous sac or this kind of big venous kind of um, structure where all the nerves are going to be traveling through and are internal carotid artery. Okay? So any kind of infection then in this cavernous sinus can affect any one of the cranial nerves and obviously it's going to cause whatever neurological symptoms would be associated with that, with that cranial nerve. From the cavernous sinus, uh, the blood is then going to drain into the different sinuses that hopefully you guys talked about before. So we're going to have uh, the superior petrosal sinus and inferior petrosal sinus. So superior petrosal sinus is this one here. It's going to be draining back into the uh, transverse sinus. And inferior petrosal sinus is this one here that's going to drain it into uh, the sigmoid. Okay? So that's how the blood can then drain back out and eventually into the internal jugular vein. If we look in the cavernous sinus specifically, so everything that we kind of saw going through the superior orbital fissure is going to be uh, coming through the cavernous sinus, and then we also have V2. Okay, so we have our uh, V, uh, sorry, cranial nerve three. We have our cranial nerve four, uh, V1, V2, and six. Okay, we also have the internal carotid artery traveling through there. And then we have the optic nerve with the optic chiasma kind of a little bit more forward. It doesn't actually go through the uh, cavernous sinus. So an infection of the cavernous sinus or maybe uh, an aneurysm of the internal carotid artery or any kind of infection will usually affect these nerves. Usually the cranial nerve 6 is the one that's uh, affected first because it's the deepest and closest to, uh, to the artery. So if you have a, a kind of, uh, any kind of compression or damage to the cranial nerve 6, what would you expect to see? So what does cranial nerve 6 do? Abducens. LR6, right? Lateral rectus. So it's going to do 
uh, abduction of the, of the eye. So what would you expect the patient to present with? Medially rotated eye. Okay? So if the lateral rectus is not working, it's not able to pull the, the eye laterally, then the medial rectus is unopposed. So the person is going to be um, looking inwards with their one eye. Okay? So they're going to be uh, cross-eyed. All right? Okay, then we have uh, the autonomics of the eye. So this is that uh, ciliary ganglion that we were talking about. Okay, we also have the nasociliary nerves coming in V1. Coming in with V1, we also have our postganglionic sympathetic fibers uh, supplying the eye, and we also have general sensory fibers uh, doing sensation coming back from the eye. Okay, from the ciliary ganglion, we have the short ciliary nerves. Okay, so long ciliary nerves and short ciliary nerves. In the short ciliary nerves, we also have the general sensory fibers. We also have uh, postganglionic sympathetics. And we also have postganglionic parasympathetic fibers. Okay? So those are the ones that are coming in uh, from the oculomotor nerve. They're going to synapse in the ciliary ganglion and then go and supply the structures in the eye that we'll see later on. The parasympathetic and sympathetic uh, innervation, what does it do in the eye? So we kind of alluded to this previously. So we have the uh, dilator pupillae also, which is going to be your sympathetic innervation, and the constrictor pupillae, which is going to be parasympathetic. Okay? It makes sense. Sympathetic is your fight and flight. So if you're in a fight, you want to get as much light into the eye as possible so your eyes wide open. You frighten somebody, usually the eyes light up. Right? So that uh, dilator pupillae is going to be sympathetic innervation. All right, moving on to the development of the eye. So the eye develops as uh, a kind of outpouching of the forebrain. So it, it starts off as this uh, optic uh, uh, groove in the ectoderm and eventually forms this optic vesicle. Okay? And this optic vesicle uh, essentially grows and enlarges and eventually develops into this optic stalk. And then the distal part develops into this optic cup. The, from the surface ectoderm, we're going to start getting this, this pit forming that's going to contribute to the eye, and that's going to give rise to the actual lens, which we'll look at later on. Okay? So the actual uh, optic stalk and the, and the cup forms from uh, uh, the uh, vesicle uh, from the forebrain, and then it kind of grows outwards and meets up with the ectoderm. Once it kind of grows back and this optic cup is forming, it starts invaginating and, and, and so creating this kind of, uh, you know, deeper kind of pocket here, this cup, okay? And this invagination continues along the stalk. So the stalk starts kind of wrapping in and around itself as well. As it does so, it starts to wrap around and incorporate these uh, hyaloid arteries around, okay? So eventually the stalk will then wrap right around these arteries and so these are the arteries that are eventually going to become the central uh, artery of the retina Okay, once that uh, retinal fissure closes down. Okay, so this is again the same process here. So we see the, the optic stock kind of wrapping around these, these uh, vessels, eventually wraps around them completely and so they become the central artery and vein of the, of the retina and then the inner layer uh, yeah, inner layer of the of the um, of the optic cup here starts uh, growing, kind of the producing these axons that then extending back to the brain. Okay, 
And so the ganglion are going to be located in what's going to become eventually the, the retinal surface. Once you start looking at the, the eyeball itself, so we saw the, the, the layers uh, previously. So this is the, uh, the, the sclera and the choroid that's going to be forming, uh, forming from the surrounding mesenchyme tissue. And they're going to start surrounding this, this cup. Okay, we also have the cornea developing. So the cornea is this kind of triple layer, all the kind of layers that are contributing to it. So we're going to have the, the skin ectoderm, the mesoderm, and then the endoderm, which, which forms from the optic cup. Uh, providing that corneal endothelium. Okay? And so this is going to become that transparent uh, part of the eye. The eyelids also develop from the, uh, the surrounding mesenchyme tissue, so they kind of grow over the cornea from the surrounding mesenchyme tissue as well. The iris starts developing uh, from the rim of the optic cup and kind of coming over uh, the lens. The ciliary body develops from the optic uh, disc as well, and the smooth muscle that's inside the ciliary body comes in from the surrounding mesenchyme tissue. The hyoid artery that we saw, the optic on a stalk wrap around, uh, originally supplies the lens. Eventually, that distal part regresses, so it disappears. That's why the lens is avascular in, uh, in adults, uh, and only the, the proximal part remains for the retina. So it continues to supply the retina, but the lens is avascular, so that part just degenerates. Okay, we have a couple uh, developmental kind of uh, abnormalities or, again, missteps. So we can have a columboma. So the colum columboma, uh, also called a keyhole pupil. Okay? So when that optic cup is kind of wrapping around, uh, sometimes it doesn't make this complete uh, fusion around. So it remains open. And so the iris appears to have a part of it kind of missing. Okay? So it's due to an incomplete uh, closure of this retinal fissure. Now, this defect can extend uh, all the way through the, the ciliary body and the retina, or it can just be right at the, at the tip in the iris itself. Okay? So these people would have normal, normal vision sometimes. Uh, everything would be, would be fine except for this kind of aesthetic uh, defect in the eye. In terms of the retina, so the retina forms from this optic cup, and so we have two layers. We have the pigmented layer, and we have the neural layer. So the outer layer forms the pigmented layer. So this is going to be the uh, outer layer of the uh, optic cup, and then this is going to be inner layer. So the one that's kind of wrapping around is going to be the inner. So that's going to become the neural layer of the retina. So these are where going to be the ganglion cells are going to be located, and the outer uh, layer of the cup becomes the uh, pigmented layer. Notice that at the beginning, there's a little bit of a space between the two layers, okay? and this is called the intraretinal space. And eventually, those two layers fuse to each other, so that space uh, obliterates. Okay? But we'll see later on how sometimes it can remain open. All right, so one more clicker question. Now what happened? Okay, it seems to be working on my computer. I can see your responses, so please click in. 
Okay, so if you haven't clicked in, please click in. We're closing the poll. I'm expecting low 30s here. All right, I don't know what's going on. Something's getting stuck. Anybody see what we what it was? I'm seeing 80. The graph is coming up for me. Oh, there it is. Okay, 80%. That is very good. Okay, I didn't expect that, so. <laughs> Sorry. Actually, that's impressive. I, I, I'm speechless. That's better, that's better than we've been doing. So, very good, 80%. So, uh, it's asking about the laceration to the short, uh, short ciliary nerves, right? So, we have to think about what fibers are found in the short ciliary nerve um, and which one would be affected. The key here is, is most affected, okay? So if we go over to the next slide, and so this is the slide that we saw previously uh, to explain this, this question. So the short ciliary nerve is, is this one here, right? So if this one's lacerated, what would be most affected, right? So of course, general sensory fibers would be affected. Of course, post-synaptic uh, post, uh, or post-ganglionic sympathetic fibers would be affected, but they're also traveling on the long ciliary nerve. So there would be some deficit there, but the parasympathetics would be completely cut off. Right, because the parasympathetics are the only ones that are traveling on a short ciliary nerve, uh, so that would be the correct answer. So very good. Okay, so we talked about that uh, intraretinal space. So normally the two layers of the retina fuse together, and that space uh, uh, kind of obliterates. But we can have this space open up, and we can have a detachment of the retina. Now, this detachment of the retina uh, can occur either due to uh, a defect in in, in the develop development or it can result as a, a blow to the eye. Okay, so sometimes you see it in, in athletes and in, in, uh, professional sports and stuff. If they get hit straight in the eye, sometimes that blow just causes those two layers to separate from each other. Um, and, and, and so that intraretinal space opens up. Now, obviously, they can go in surgically and they can fix it so they can reattach the two layers back together if there's no other damage. Okay, so here on this image, you can see that uh, detachment of, of the retina here. Okay, here as well. So that's the intraretinal space forming where it shouldn't be and just starts filling in with fluid. The development of the lens, is, as uh, we kind of seen it before uh, previously, so it's, it's fairly straightforward. So it's just a pinching off from the, the surface ectoderm. So it begins as this little pit, then forms this little vesicle. Eventually that vesicle kind of pinches off and kind of migrates towards the, the optic cup. The optic cup kind of just swallows it uh, a whole and then the hyaloid artery supplies it uh, at the beginning and eventually, like we said, the distal part degenerates and becomes avascular. The uh, lens itself is composed of these uh, epithelial cells. So we have uh, anterior epithelial cells and posterior epithelial cells. The posterior epithelial cells uh, eventually lose their nuclei and they end up kind of elongating. And so that's what uh, you're going to see kind of forming the bulk of the kind of the uh, posterior part of of the eye. And so these cells are going to be kind of transparent and they kind of layer the cells almost like the, the cells in an onion. Okay. Um, so we see that here. Okay. So we also have these uh, uh, equatorial cells that develop kind of in the middle. So these are going to be the anterior cells. The posterior cells are going to be these ones here. And you see they're kind of elongated. They lose their nuclei, so they're enucleated. And then we have the equatorial cells in the middle. So they start multiplying, dividing. And that's how the lens kind of grows to its uh, uh, adult size. 
Okay, so another condition that we can have is going to be uh, cataracts. Okay, so we can have these uh, opaqueness uh, in the lens. Okay, given the kind of lens is kind of grayish, kind of white appearance. Uh, so essentially we lose the kind of the transparency of the lens. Now this can be either a congenital uh, condition, uh, sometimes due to teratogenic uh, agents that are used during pregnancy or infection. Uh, and sometimes they occur just basically as part of aging. So, you know, maybe your grandparents, uh, you know, uh, have it. And so they can sometimes just appear due to aging, kind of probably UV radiation and kind of all this other insult on the eyes. Uh, they can come in. The cataracts can be surgically removed. So they obviously have to open up the eyes. So they have to reflect the cornea, get to the, to the lens, and they can resect that part of the lens. That's kind of the uh, opaqueness, has opaqueness to it. Uh, to return that kind of transparency to the eye, okay? Oftentimes with age, these kind of tend to come back. So, you know, it gives you kind of temporary um, relief. All right, let's take a 10-minute break and come back at uh, 11 o'clock for the next lecture.